And I'm, I'm a little worried about halfway through this conversation <laughs> how Fanny is coming off. <laughs> but on the other hand, I don't have a lot to rebuff it with. <laughs> so we plow on. We plow on. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to think of something. Welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for listening again and tuning back in. We are very excited to be with you. I think whenever I'm in charge of this part of the episode, I say the exact same thing I'm noticing. And I always say, we're very excited to be with you because we are. Yeah, you're not wrong. No, it's not like I'm being untruthful. Week after week, we get the pleasure of discussing scripts that have been influential to the the world of theater, that have been influential to us, that have excellence in them. And this week, it's exciting because we're coming to a brand new playwright. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brand new for this uh, podcast. We have not talked about this playwright before, and that playwright is Tina Howe, everybody. We are finally doing a Tina Howe play. That's right, and this will continue to happen as long as no script is around. We'll, every once in a while, we'll have an episode about a playwright we've never talked about before. Right. And that'll happen a couple more times this season and long into the future because there's so many good playwrights. Mm-hmm. To say that we talk about theater's best scripts, that's a really broad category. So many scripts are so, so good, and it's taken us a while to get to Tina Howe, but I couldn't be more thrilled that we're here. Yeah, and that we're talking about this play in specific. We're talking about Painting Churches today, which is just a, a another just lovely play um, uh, about this family unit. I'm, I'm excited to get to start talking about it. But before we jump into the script, I want to take just a moment and thank all of you who have headed over to patreon.com slash podcast and become a patron of the show. Uh, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we have a Patreon account and that's the way that we keep this show running. This show is a labor of love for us. We love uh, being able to talk about scripts with you on the podcast waves, but alas, it is not a free endeavor. There are a variety of hosting fees and uh, play costs for plays we can't find at our local library, and uh, the folks over at patreon.com slash podcast help enormously in, in enabling us to continue dedicating this much time and resources into this podcast. So, if you are looking for a chance to contribute to the show if you're a long-time listener or short-time listener if you're looking to contribute head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast there's a bunch of different tiers over there there's a but the first tier is as low as one dollar and that one dollar amount helps us out enormously so if you're looking to contribute head over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we will see you over there we're so thankful for those that have gone over to contribute you are Just such a blessing to us that you've chosen to support the show in that way. I hope some of you out there who have not yet will choose to go over there. If you're enjoying No Script, then I hope you feel like you're getting $1 a month of value out of your experience with No Script. And if that is your feeling, if you can say, I get a dollar a month of value out of listening to No Script, I hope you consider to go over to Patreon and contribute that dollar. So we would be really thankful for those of you that would, and we're thankful to those of you that have. And now, back to the script. Yeah, yeah, back to the script. 
Painting Churches. This was produced by the Second Stage Theater. That's an off-Broadway theater in 1983. It went on to play at the Lamb Theater, or at Lamb's Theater, I'm sorry. Uh, then in 2012, this would be the production that is most recent that had some, you know, some some run to it that would people might have known. Revived off-Broadway at the at the Clerman Theater. And that that production has some great clips online. We often like to mention if you can find clips of shows that are really fun to watch, and that production has some good clips that you can check out as well. It is interesting. It you know the the play was nominated for a Pulitzer. We love to pull from the Pulitzer list, not just from the winners, but from the finalists as well, because finalists have lots of great plays in them. This year, the year that it was nominated for the Pulitzer was 1984, and the the winner that year was Glenn Glary Glenn Ross. By David Dammit. <laughs> Another play we've talked about that's an incredibly amazing play, so influential. And the other finalist was Fool for Love by Sam Shepard. So that year, the Pulitzer had two of the great names of American theater in it, David Mamet and Sam Shepard, and a third name that is definitely one of the great names of theater, Tina Howe. Yeah, and what Tina Howe has done in this script is crafted just like a beautiful little microcosm experience for us. Um, uh, and, and and she does it by focusing in on a family. So we like to synopsize the script real quick, and I'm going to do that right now. Uh, th- this family is the family of Gardner and Fanny Church and their daughter, Mags. Um, Gardner is a uh, pretty much retired poet, um, writer uh, of some acclaim. Um, he's won a, a, decent, a decent amount of awards and... And, uh, and now he's uh, kind of experiencing a slump in his old age as some of his ability to function uh, begins to leave him. Uh, both both mentally and physically, he is starting to deteriorate. Um, the, the inciting incident of this play... We'll, we'll talk about the inciting incident of this play, but the action of this play is around them moving out of their house. Um, they, they're boxing everything up. They're moving to a cottage, a smaller uh, place for them that's easier to manage. And to manage this move, they've called in their daughter, Mags, to help them move out of the house. Another additional little bit of bait that they've given her is that uh, Mags, being an artist, she is a like a, a painter uh, with gallery shows and such, they have finally uh, given her permission to paint them, paint a portrait of them, something that we... Portraiture is Mag's bread and butter. This is what she does as an artist, as a painter. She, they talk about that several times throughout the play. How impressive her portraits are, the the things that she loves about portraits, the the shows that she's put on of portraits. But she has not yet done a portrait of her parents. So before the action of the play, the parents have apparently said, "You can finally do this portrait of us if you come and help us move." Right, right. So Meg shows up with her easel and is ready to go. And what follows is just the action of that. Um, she's helping them pack up. They're having conversations. Um, it's this it's this dynamic of family that doesn't get together much um, and, and how they interact with each other in this moment of sadness, of grief, of loss, but also of, of uh, kind of threshold moments and also poignancy in family and the changing of relationship of Mags as the daughter to kind of uh, a- another role to her parents as she watches and maybe caretakes them a little bit as they grow o- older. That's right. So many great plays have what you just described, Jackson, a threshold moment that is about to happen to the family. They're, they're set just immediately before some major change. And Tina Howe has crafted a very major change. This family has lived in this house forever. 
They're an old Bostonian family, and especially the uh, Fanny and Gardner, this older couple, their their character descriptions, and then throughout the play, they reflect on their history. Their their families are from Boston. They are. They're Boston people from Boston culture, and they're about to move away from all that out to Cape Cod to a little college to uh, we learn why, at least why Fanny claims later on is one of the reasons is because she needs to take better care of Gardner and a smaller place will help with them with that. They also don't have a lot of money because Gardner's not publishing poetry anymore, and so they don't have that income coming in. All these things have caused them to be on this threshold of change. Now, it's interesting, Jackson, that, you know, plays are about change. They're about the ways in which characters go on journeys and things about them, about their lives, about their outlooks change over the course of the story. But this major change of moving out, the final beat of the show is them exiting the house. So that change, what that change is going to do to Fanny and Gardner over the rest of their lives is not something the audience gets to be part of. Yeah, yeah, it's not really addressed. Instead, we just kind of are here for that um, kind of painful moment before we're in the kind of not yet phase of that change for them as they are uh, uh, packing things up, moving things out. And I think what that does is it allows us to kind of examine the rawness of these characters. Um, it, they haven't they haven't rebuilt their defenses yet. They haven't moved to the new place, built up defenses, built up new ways to deal with uh, being in this new space. Instead, it's right here. It's right here in the raw of loss of, of having to leave something. Uh, with with their uh, at least from the perspective of Gardner and Fanny with a child who they've kind of lost in some ways as well, and so so that kind of repeating theme gets brought in as well. This renewing of relationship with Mags. I like the, what you just talked about. This idea that we don't participate in the life of the church family after they've moved into their new home at Cape Cod or before they've thrown their current home in Boston into disarray. The few days that we spend with them is in the midst of a home that has had its defenses blown apart. You think about going home to an old family home or even your home now, there are things that you've hidden away in closets. There are boxes that you don't bring out to talk about because they don't matter or they're forgotten. There are different ways you've crafted your home to keep people in certain rooms, to keep them thinking about certain things, to to craft the experience of having a guest in your home. You say the defenses that you build up in a home, the way your home is constructed. And so bringing Mags into the church home in the midst of everything having been torn down. By the time she gets there, there's already boxes, antiques, things pulled out, things in piles all over, and that only gets more and more throughout the show. The home is in disarray, and that's a kind of defense, a kind of comfortability that maybe when Mags has visited before has existed that doesn't exist this time. Mm-hmm. And that that uncomfortability, whether subconscious for the characters or subconscious for us, brings about some really interesting action that wouldn't necessarily happen otherwise. Um, to kind of narrow us down to specifics, I want to return to something you said uh, a couple minutes ago uh, about why they're moving to the cottage. You said uh, what Fanny says about Gardner is that... Uh, uh, and and then then we moved on. Uh, let's let's dig into that theme a little bit because I think that is an interesting uh, 
uh, causes some interesting dialogue in this play is what Fanny claims about Gardner and the reasons why they are moving away from this house. So the church parents, Fanny and Gardner, are in the stages of losing their minds to some degree. I mean, clearly both of them have been touched perhaps just solely by old age and memory loss. But I I also think that it's pretty clear both of them have been touched by, I don't know whether it's dementia or the early stages of Alzheimer's. They have trouble keeping track of things. They have trouble keeping track of each other. They have trouble keeping track of the conversation. Um, And so their life together is fairly hectic and frantic. You know, it's interesting. We just talked about the fact that everything has sort of been torn down and they're in this new world within their home. But the play opens with what feels like a very familiar uh, part of their life, which is Fanny's in the living room doing something. In this case, in this specific instance, she's sorting things to move. And she's having a screaming conversation with Gardner in his study, which we think is just around the corner. Yeah. And because we can hear him typing. And Gardner can't hear her for the life of him. <laughs> and but Fanny sort of goes on as if he can't as if he can't, you know, it feels like this is part of their routine, these screaming conversations where one of them is sort of left out of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And and throughout the play you get more and more instances of this. Um you also get the the uh the the impression that <sighs> I got the impression, at least, that Gardner is kind of less aware. Um, some some of Fanny's account is is kind of true. I think Gardner is kind of progressing towards or, or falling into old age a little bit faster than Fanny is. Um, like the scene at the beginning where she's yelling to the other room. He comes in and is just kind of like, "Huh, what?" Um, is a little bit <laughs> a little or, bit more. Uh, the the crucial moment where that crystallizes into something physical is in. Eh, I forget which act it's in, but it's in the middle of the play, basically. And Gardner has come home from visiting somewhere. He says just going on a walk. And he's supposed to put his coat away. And virtually over and over, he goes to the closet to put his coats away and instead just brings back a hanger and hands it to uh, Fanny. And then at one point he takes his coat off and then puts his coat back on without really thinking about it. Coat comes off, he gets another hanger. There's this rotation of him knowing that he's supposed to be doing something, he goes to the closet with the intention of doing something and losing that train uh, by virtue of conversation, by virtue of distraction, and ending up doing something totally else. Yeah, and then uh, and there's more. I think it kind of builds, uh, kind of building blocks through the play of this. There's there's the one we mentioned originally, the shouting match, basically, or the shouting one-sided um, from from Fanny. Then there's the code incident, and then there's a uh, like a pretty just straight up physical one where he has some level of incontinence and uh, wets his trousers um, uh, during a scene, uh, which is which is uh, a scene that just breaks down this family dynamic quite a lot but but combinate come those three scenes combined together um kind of make me lean towards some credence to fanny's claim that she is this caretaker of gardner um but it's it's weird we don't we don't ever really i don't feel like i get a full gardner perspective from this play either like no, I, I agree. It, yeah. It's a little bit hard to tell exactly what Gardner thinks about his own illness. 
his own progression into old age, his own losing his faculties. We've talked about the mental faculties, and you just mentioned something that comes up really in, in the height of the play, the, the maybe, maybe the climactic conversation of the play. It's revealed that also Gardner is wedding himself on, on occasions, and so Fanny feels like she can't take him out into public. Who knows what's going to happen? And that's when she also reveals one of the reasons why we're moving into this smaller house on the Cape is that I need to be able to keep better track of Gardner. I mean, I have to, we have to be in a smaller place where I can take care of him better. Right. Uh, that's going to be best for him moving forward. And she reveals that at that point, at least, a, again, at least a claim that if it were up to her, she'd rather stay in Boston. She's not particularly excited about this move. She's doing it, again, as a claim, at least because she thinks it's best for Gardner. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that I also am not sure we ever really get Fanny's perception of her own traveling <laughs> on the journey of age. Right. She, at some times, uh, claims to be far and away the one who is still in good shape in the marriage and is keeping and holding things together. And yet, other times, several times throughout the place, she says something along the lines of, I'm getting just as bad as Gardner. Oftentimes after she's forgotten something or misheard something or lost track of a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just... There seems to be just a little bit more, uh, we, we get a little bit more of a glimpse into her internal monologue, I guess. Um, and and so, so in that way, my perception is that she's more aware of the situation. And so, and so is, and is thus a little bit further back in the health journey um, and a little bit more able to, to uh, figure out what's going on. But I agree that throughout the play, we get kind of a back and forth with her of this, like wondering, you know, is, is she okay as well? Is it, is it, is this going to be a healthy step for them to go off alone together or, or is, is, is something else needed? Is something from mags needed um, rather than just these two going off alone into a cottage by the sea? <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm very curious what is going to happen next yeah. at the end of this play. Not because the plot is especially intricate in terms of actually things happening to the characters and, and uh, you know, sort of external parts of their life changing, but because I really have no idea. It's it's sort of odd to think that this couple can go very much longer without some sort of external care. They're, they seem to be in sort of rough shape at the current point. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think one of the things that um, helps us know what's happening next for this family is how Mags crashes into this play. So, so we've talked about this dynamic of, of Fanny and Gardner quite a bit so far. Into this dynamic crashes their, their daughter, who is... Um, a little bit of a free spirit, maybe, um, uh, kind of comes in and is ready to go with this painting thing um, and and interacts with them, at least the first scene, in a way that's like uh, kind of what she wants to pick up right where she left off. She, she's, she's not like it doesn't acknowledge right away the present moment of their relationship and where they are health wise. And, and, and she doesn't really even want to acknowledge what is going on with her parents. A couple of times, Fanny brings up with Mags or tries to start the conversation, look, your father's in rough shape. He continues to get worse. I'm having a hard time caring for him. And Mags' response is nothing short of dismissive. Yeah. Not only do I not want to talk about that, but also you're such a pessimist. He's fine. He's just as sane as anybody else is his age. There's no problem. And that kind of denial then culminates in this 
crystallizing moment, climactic moment at the end of the play where that we've talked about, where she's where Mag sees uh, something that is no longer possible to deny, which is Gardner wedding himself. That yeah, yeah, I can't turn away from this anymore. Mm-hmm. I wonder if some of that dynamic has to do with her relationship to her mother and father, Mags's relationship to her mother and father. Um, what we what we uh, begin to experience throughout the play is how Gardner and Fanny treat Mags and her art. Um, and and at least in the examples that we have in the play, uh, Gardner is pretty unilaterally supportive of Mags, um, almost almost to the point of just kind of like blind love. Um, but then Fanny is a little bit more um, a bit more of a critic, uh, especially of like Mags's looks. She comments on her hair quite often, which is uh, dyed a different color than she's used to and a different cut than she's used to. Um, and yeah, uh, Fanny is not very it does not seem that she's very supportive of mags as an artist we get this a couple of times in things that fanny says directly for example uh she's trying fanny's trying to get rid of a bunch of their stuff because they don't want to move it so she's trying to get mags to take this sugar bowl or something and she says like you don't you serve tea to your students in that wretched art school you teach at (laughs) like Wow. Yep. <laughs> so we get some stuff like that from her and then we hear some stuff that Mags remembers Fanny saying and all we nobody denies that it happened but we don't ever see it on stage like the story Mags tells about her first art show where in front of a major critic apparently Fanny is talking about one of Mags's portraits and basically says, "You know, it doesn't really look like her at all." Right. Yeah, yeah, and is like telling like childish stories about her and and just behaving in in a in a mother to child sort of way in a in a professional space. So you you get the fact that you get the idea that there's some unaddressed issues between Fanny and Mags uh, that that begin to boil up in 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 the action of this play. And I wonder, the only real clue that I can pick out as to why Fanny is is so not on board with Mags as an artist is this one little reference where I believe that this occurs after Mags has told them that she's going to have a major art show or something like that. And Fanny says, basically, well, you get it all from your grandma, my mother. She was a great artist. She had this painting that is still around that people love. But of course... At that time, it would not have been appropriate for a young woman to be an artist. I, I, and I wonder if there, if some of that lives in Fanny, this idea that Mags is not living you know, in, an, in a way that is appropriate for a young woman. It's a play from the 80s, so that's a different time from now, for sure. Hopefully those attitudes don't exist. And she's, uh, the, uh, Fanny is in her 60s, so she was a person that grew up in a different age. So those two things combined can make that at least a viewpoint we might be willing to accept as something happening in front of us. Other clues that lead me maybe towards that are the fact that Fanny is pretty seems to be fairly concerned that Mags hasn't met a husband yet is kind of one of those mothers trying to set her up with anybody and everybody 
Yeah, yep, yep. And and there's a, there's also this is going to be a deep dive on one little stage direction. So bear with me as I get 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 into the weeds <laughs> on it. on one little stage direction. Um it's actually not even a stage direction, it's a character description of Gardner and it's just at the beginning of the play and it says uh Gardner is of a slightly higher from a family of slightly higher class than Fanny. Um, and, and, and there's that, there's that interesting aspect as well to lean into of like, you know, Gardner is an artist, he's a poet. Um, and so Fanny kind of, uh, living into that relationship, uh, marrying into another, uh, 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 a higher social class. Um, there's that aspect as well to, to, uh, think about that she's been kind of playing up into this class that, that Gardner's in for, for a good chunk of their marriage. There are other things that seem to reinforce this idea that Fanny is particularly interested in acceptable social behavior and acceptable social choices. One of the major things that occurs through the play is plot-wise is that Mags reveals uh, this memory that she has from being a child about one of her first pieces of art that both Fanny and Gardner have more or less forgotten. And in some ways, it's kind of a terrible story, not not a badly written story by terrible, but I mean a heart-wrenchingly sort of terrible story. And it's about when Mags was a child, she had apparently a gap in her front teeth, and uh, she would, like, chew her food. This is going to be kind of gross, so <laughs> you, you may want to, like, hit the 15 seconds or 30 seconds forward button if you get grossed out easily. She would, like, chew her food and then, like, use her tongue to push the chewed food through the gap in her front teeth so it came out in sort of a like a little noodle I guess <laughs> and she would like make little art designs with the different colors of food very gross uh, but Fanny was like that is not a you know that's not appropriate you you're gonna go to your room and tell you can behave appropriately with your food. Now, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing for a parent to say. I can imagine my parents saying that to me. I can imagine me saying that to my kids someday. Behave appropriately with your food or there's consequences. But what's interesting to me about that exchange is that Gardner remembers it not as something negative that Fanny or that Mags did. He remembers how beautiful the designs used to be. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, almost like a kind of a, a revisionist way of looking back at, at 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 what they were or what their family dynamic was. And it's interesting that 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 story is followed up by kind of a doubling down on this like from something ugly making something beautiful and her mom and Fanny not not experiencing it as <laughs> as beautiful because when she's dismissed to her room, Mags begins like melting crayons on their radiator to make this uh, behemoth, apparently. <laughs> Sculpture thing of melted wax yeah. that it goes on for weeks, and she keeps buying crayons with her allowance and makes this, she remembers it as this sort of beautiful, colorful first piece of art that she kept covered for a while until her mother eventually discovered it, and then her mother burns it off the radiator and destroys it. Right, right. Just another example of, of her not appreciating her art. <laughs> So all that to say, I think it's possible that one of Fanny's, one of the reasons why she's so opposed to Mags as an artist, and in a in a loving, supporting way, let me finish my thought and then I'll come back to that. Yeah, one yeah. of the reasons why she's so opposed to Mags as an artist might be because she feels that 
being an art teacher and painter, unmarried art teacher painter in New York City is not really the appropriate way to live your life if you're from a fine Bostonian family, as uh, Fanny believes that she and Gardner and Mags are as well. The the hostility is, is not that open, though, right? She, she seems at face to be sort of supportive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then, but then, like the 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 stories begin to emerge, right? The stories of her her kind of saying uh, saying mean things, I guess. Saying and mean is 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 such a broad word, but saying things to Mags that she receives as she doesn't like my art, she doesn't like what I contribute, she doesn't like the style that I pick, she doesn't like my lifestyle or my choices. Um, and so, so I think. That is a part of the story that actually gets redeemed by the end of the play. We, we, we walk with them through this play and we get a bit of redemption for that eventually in, in the portrait that she is painting of her parents. That's right. The, the final image of the play, to spoil it for those of you who haven't read it, <laughs> but it's important for the conversation, is Mags revealing the portrait of Fanny and Gardner to them. And immediately, Gardner is, of course, in love with it, how clever it is, mm-hmm. look at all this beautiful stuff about it. And Fanny is immediately, you didn't paint me right at all. I don't look like that. My hair isn't like that. My face isn't like that. But then over the course of about two pages of discussion of the painting, both Gardner and Fanny sort of fall in love with the painting. Oh, look at how young we are. Look at how dapper you are. Look at the way we're posed together. It's sort of romantic. And Mags is meanwhile going, oh, they like it. They can't, I can't believe they like it. She's overjoyed. Mm-hmm. And because Fanny and Gardner are looking at this sort of romantic painting of them, that leads them into this sort of romantic dance. Yeah. So you're right. The long-standing opposition, however, whatever it's based in, is somewhat redeemed by the end of the play. There is some change in that relationship, at least on that piece of art. Mm-hmm. And if you, I mean, it, the the scene the scene at the end of the play has uh, them talking about this painting over uh, over the course of two pages. And over the course of those two pages, Mags just keeps repeating, "They liked it. They like it. They really like it. They like it a lot. They like it." And I, that that for me, at least in the reading of it, was kind of a powerful moment for the character. Um, it made me made me dream of a world at least or, or or think of the world where she has yet to really feel over her entire life that specifically I think her mom but really her parents in general really like her art and believe right. she it. says they like it is the English that she uses but I, I think you're right that it's almost explicitly clear you almost could have written she likes it mm-hmm. instead because she's talking about her mother her father has liked at least verbally, everything she's done. I also sort of get the sense that Gardner's support is maybe skin deep. Sure, sure. He just he just says platitudes about how much he likes it, um, but that that might be an unfair accusation. Yeah. yeah. To to kind of switch our gear just a little bit and uh, segue from Gardner, um, there's there's some pretty uh, powerful themes in this play around the loss that that these characters are experiencing, specifically what Gardner is experiencing in terms of his writing. Um, we talk about um, uh, physical props through in, in many of our plays and the negotiation of physical things in the play. And, and one of the things that is negotiated throughout this play is the packing, the physical packing of things. Mags is here to help them pack, to get the packing to happen. And you kind of get the sense that Fanny had to call Mags in to get the packing to happen at all. Um, of course. I mean, how 
how could you it's it's sort of hard to imagine a play that could be more that that has more opportunity to use the negotiation of objects <laughs> as a strong character world than a play about moving. Mm-hmm. Moving is even in real life about the negotiation of objects. <laughs> I've had cause to move several times in the past couple of years, and let me tell you, you could write a stage drama about every time we've had to do it. Uh-huh. The negotiation of objects when moving is deeply personal. <laughs> it's it, it's it's one of the most personal, intimate things you can do, even with the most personal, intimate people around you. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and and when you're moving a lifetime of stuff too, that's that's going to be cause for a lot of tension, and there is a lot of tension there's a meta tension around the move there's a smaller meta tension then around the study and Gardner's study and then there's an even more refined one around uh Gardner's current book which is not a necessarily a book of poetry although there's some room in there for wondering about whether or not he's actually writing poetry or not but at least they're saying that he's writing a commentary on 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 poetry right and this is going to be another instance of Fanny of describing Fanny being dismissive. And I'm a little worried about halfway through this conversation <laughs> how Fanny is coming off. But on the other hand, I don't have a lot to rebuff it with. So we plow on. We plow on. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to think of something. <laughs> um, so we know from early in the play through the whole thing that Gardner is not able to write real poetry anymore. Or, I'm sorry, his own poetry anymore is what I mean. And that has brought in a lack of income. He's got like long-term writer's block, uh, probably somewhat due to his age and whatever he's battling in terms of his illness. And so instead, he's decided to write this book of criticism. And Fanny has a couple issues with it that she really only brings up with Mags. The first is, uh, on a practical level, she just doesn't feel like he can really do criticism. He teaches writing, not writing criticism. He's a writer, not a critic. He, she doesn't feel like he is capable of writing criticism at all. Additionally, because of whatever's going on with Gardner, she claims most of it is gibberish anyway. You can't understand a word of it. It's about nothing. The, he, his analysis of the poetry doesn't make any sense. Thirdly, uh, it's just basically how the book is manifesting itself is just stacks of papers in the study that are a huge mess and totally unorganized. So she's got these three criticisms that reoccur throughout the play. And then finally, later in Act 2, actually during the climax scene, um, Fanny has decided she's pushing forward and she starts pulling all this stuff out of the study, including these stacks of papers that are Gardner's book, which she just sort of spews about, disorganizing them. Mm-hmm. Throws like throws them by the handful, basically into a tote or something like that. That like she's she's gonna a box that she's going to just take the whole thing out with. Halfway through her doing that, Gardner realizes that she's doing it and begins to freak out. Um, he he runs into the study. He's he's got like you know chapter two point five, and he's looking for chapter one and he can't find chapter one. And so there's there's a physical struggle over the paper as many as I think all three of the characters at one point or another are holding the manuscript, and and eventually it just gets like. Uh, flown around the room there's an image where Gardner is just like on the ground over a strewn pile of papers and is trying to organize it and 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 in that way it's 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 a kind of a poignant image for for the mind in general (laughs) something a, a book right a book that has order and chapters and a progression has been just completely shattered on the stage and is 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 changing hands fluidly is thrown around on the floor 
this struggle between Fanny and Gardner that is ongoing about the struggle over the power in their marriage, the struggle over where they are, the struggle over what Gardner's doing with his life manifests itself in this moment where Fanny has a a pile of papers that belong to Gardner's manuscript and he's demanding that she give them to him. She is demanding that she's in charge of the move. She gets to decide. She holds the papers over her head so she can't, he can't get them. And he reaches and just sort of grabs her arm and wrenches them from her. And she claims that he's hurt her. Mm-hmm. And so there's this big, finally, physical confrontation where he actually s- s- takes something from her, something that belongs to him, that's precious to him, takes it from her and guards it from her, hurting her in the process. Yeah. And in, and in, in that moment, you, you, you start to see some of the dynamic that, that you, it starts to make sense, I think. Some of the dynamic that is, is really not working <laughs> around around Gardner's behavior. You start in, and and right then in that scene, you get just to, just to work our way back around to trying to defend Fanny a little bit. You get one of Fanny's most uh impassioned breakdown monologues where all of her uh, uh abilities to cope have been uh kind of broken away um and she just admits to Meg that or Mags that um uh, that this is just not working. This is not the way that she wants to end her life either, or or to spend her, the ending years of her life. Uh, she kind of she. Th- there's a line in here. Um, just I'll I'll, I'll find it. Uh, all I'm trying to do is exit with a little flourish, have some fun. What's so terrible about that? It can get pretty grim around here. In case you haven't noticed, and uh, and and that's that's kind of what she is carrying. This 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 like. She's kind of going into the into the last, you know, decades of her life, and she's she's feeling the tension around being around Gardner, who will fight for you know random papers that are never going to materialize into a book. <laughs> yeah, and and of course, in some ways, she's referring to death, and maybe even most sharply, she's referring to the fact that they're in the years before they both know they're going to die, but also. She says, you know, it's all over now. And there is a sense in the church household that their life as it used to be is over. Gardner is no longer this famous New England poet turning out Pulitzers every couple of years. Uh, Fanny feels, and she describes very acutely the way that her time has changed her physical body. She's always describing herself as a wreck. And uh, you can't look at me like this. You can't see me like this. And we know that both Gardner and Fanny's minds are beginning to go a little bit. They're behaving in very unusual ways and all the other things we've discussed about losing track of things and conversation. So not just what is coming that is going to end, you know, death, that is going to end our life, but also what has been behind us is over now as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And some of that we get the story of by way of seeing what again seeing what they're moving like you see Paul Revere Silver at the beginning of this play you see you see the life that they have that they have led of like hosting and 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 society in Boston and and frequent mentions of like the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, stories and poems that Gardner would do so you you I I agree you absolutely feel the sense of this uh, dying to a lifestyle as well. Um, that is that is happening really again at this threshold at this moment as we're observing them. 
Right. You know, I described how doing a play about moving is a great way to have a play full of negotiations over objects. It's also a great way to have a play about nostalgia. About And there's a beautifully nostalgic, touching moment where as Fanny's trying to pack, in the meantime, Mags is setting up what she's going to use to paint. And so they're, they're alone a little bit and having this sort of conversation about some of the stuff that Fanny finds. One of the things she finds are these old snow boots. And she tells this beautiful story about when she and Gardner were young and they used to go sledding down the campus streets. And it's just, it's 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 so beautiful that it almost is painful. Yeah. That, you know, that's a time that has gone by. Is Are there beautiful moments left? I think that's one of the questions. Fanny is seems to be seems to be of the opinion that there are not beautiful moments left Hmm. except when she's experiencing them right like there are times when even at the end of the scene where this it kind of switches on ahead and and she intentionally sometimes does this to gardner she'll like after they're done with the fight she's like so how's the packing going and he's like oh the packing's going fine um and 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 there's that aspect but then there is the beautiful scene at the end where they're like dancing together um and and so there there's i I think i think the play some of what the hope that the play is offering is that even in this loss even in this um pain of going through having to give up so much of what you had there will be there will be new beautiful moments to experience absolutely undoubtedly i think that that is one of the things tina howe is saying in this play is that it's not over for Gardner and Fanny. There are still touching, beautiful, joyful parts of their life left, even if Fanny is in a place where she feels like it's hopeless that those kinds of beautiful moments are going to happen to them again. She's wrong. She's pr- that that particular uh, depressed outlook is proved incorrect by the action over the course of the play. A lot of what we've described, though, Jackson, is mostly about Gardner and Fanny. Yeah. About them discovering sort of these new parts of their lives, looking back on these old parts of their lives. Why is Mags a character in this play? Hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's. I, I tend to always like try to whack at the boring answers. Um, she's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one 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 of the reasons is uh, she's she's almost the. I I get the sense that I'm walking into the play as as Mags. In, in some ways. Um, and maybe it's my own age. Um, that's, that's kind of leading me towards that bias, but, um, she's a little bit of an every person, uh, walking into the scenario and experiencing where they're at. She's been gone for a while, um, you know, stops in infrequently. And so she can thus engage, um, where they're at in kind of a fresher way with a bunch of baggage, of course. Um, also, though, this is this is I think this is partially as as much as this is uh, Fanny and Gardner's uh, story of loss to um, hope. Um, this is kind of Mags's story of uh, a journey towards reconciliation with her parents, especially with her mother um, and the journey from uh, kind of being out in the cold in terms of uh, their interaction with her vocation and feeling like there is some uh, seenness, some ability by them to know her and appreciate what she offers in the world and, and her pursuits and passions. 
Yeah, I think you're right. The The play is not just about the relationship between Fanny and Gardner. It's a lot also about the relationship between Fanny and Mags. And in that way, I wonder, you know, both of those things are about Fanny. Hmm. Uh, Gardner and Mags' relationship... I don't I don't feel like there's a lot of material there to worry about whether it was bad in the past and it's being redeemed now. I don't feel like there's a lot of moments of redemption for it in the play because I don't think it is a relationship in need of redemption. Um, I, I could be wrong about that. I, I do think that there are some instances where it seems like Gardner still views her and her work as if she were a child and basically says oh that's very nice good work you're you're lovely and then at the end of the play realizes how talented she really is i think that's i do think that's in there but it's not in there to the same degree that fanny and mags whatever has existed whatever pain has existed in their relationship forever where that is finally put to the test and hopefully redeemed in some way by the end of the play I yeah I agree I think that the 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 uh, certainly the tension of the play what you're kind of kind of uh, grimacing and leaning away from as things are happening are the interactions between Fanny and Mags and and how they're gonna work it out so maybe some of there there's 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 some moments where uh, you could maybe wish that that life was different for uh, Fanny and Gardner. Um, but but the motion that we go on is is a redemption of the relationship between Fanny and Mags. Well, and, and I also I, I do believe that it's almost equally about the redemption of the relationship between Fanny and Gardner. In fact, I think that it might be that the though both of those relationships are sort of stuck in this same place, which is Fanny viewing both Gardner now because of what has been happening to him and Mags since she was a child as children Hmm. in need of instruction and correction and whose ideas and opinions are able to be dismissed easily because they're not informed opinions. You know, Fanny at a number of times throughout the play seems to take the hold of the idea that she's the only one that really knows what's going on around here. Garner doesn't really know because he can't really keep track of things like that anymore. You don't really know because you're never here. I'm the one with the knowledge and thus the expertise. And maybe one of the things that happens through the play is that she has that perceptive or that perception shifted a little bit, maybe? Mm-hmm. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. Or or I think I think this could also be and, uh, not or, and I think Mags also appreciates that perspective a little bit more by the end of the play. Mags uh, sees the, uh, the the fact that uh, Fanny is around <laughs> for all of the complications that Gardner brings into their relationship and that there's stuff that her idealized version of her father does not include in their relationship. So this right. The the accusation that Fanny levels against Mags in the climactic moment of the play, this is the moment where Fanny has torn the steady apart. She seems to be sort of cruelly just doing whatever she wants with these manuscripts, despite what Gardner has asked her to do. Mags has finally broken away from her painting enough to come over and say, what are you doing? Why are you treating him like this? You're being so cruel to him. And the accusation Fanny levels back is, well, why do you get to make that accusation? You're not around. What? In fact, I believe this is this is something like a quote. She says, what do you offer to Gardner that costs you something? And that's the reality for Fanny, right? She's the one whom is being asked to offer something, to sacrifice something for her presence here. 
and Mags is not. She just pops in and out. She, uh, you know, like Fanny says uh, in that same monologue, you just come in and you say, oh, look, Dad, your hair is so white. Yeah. And Fanny apparently has harbored that in her heart since the very first moments of the play where Mags does actually say that and is now bringing it back as fuel and says, well, what do you expect? Why do you make a joke or a lighthearted statement about that? He's getting the, the white hair's proof of something that you're not around to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that and and that's kind of I, I like the 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 attention to her holding on to something from the beginning of the play because I think that's a lot of what Fanny ends up doing is like experiencing something and having to hold it in, and and what we see in the play is kind of her finally letting out a lot of that stuff, and and and, and some of that is the the dropping of the defenses of the house that enables her to do that. And so you had it sort of leads you to wonder is Fanny a sympathetic protagonist? I, I think the, I think the play is hers. I think it's her story. I think it, it maybe is the more obvious um, thing to say, well, the play is Mags because she's the stranger that comes to town. But I think Fanny is the one, I think her journey is the journey that we follow from page one to page the end. Mm-hmm. And is she a sympathetic protagonist? I mean, we've talked all about how poorly she treats the people around her a number of times, but that's not all the play, right? She's She treats both of them kindly a number of different times. Yeah, and I think it's easy to kind of uh, give her a bit of a, uh, a leaning towards the bad rap, but the other thing that she's holding in her is time. Time is the other uh, thing in this play that is running out um, because they are someone is coming to move them on a day the house presumably is pretty much sold and they're they're going to the new house and they need to be out and the day before uh uh gardner is still not packed his study so the other thing that that uh fanny is holding on to is she's running the whole this whole show she's not getting any help to run this show so she's uh, many of those moments where tension arises where she's like we we're moving out tomorrow <laughs> Move your stuff out of the study so that she's holding so much in her throughout this play. Right. And not only that, but so much else. She 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 has she's bearing the weight of so much. And some of what the journey of the audience is throughout the play is taking this behavior that sometimes seems shocking the way that she the, some of the stuff she says to the people around her and you start to unpack what are the stresses that she's got on her shoulders throughout the play that have formed these defensive walls that cause her to seem dismissive and rude at different times we've named so many of them the loss of you know the feeling like the life that they had that she so loved uh is over feeling like her daughter is not interested in being part of their life and never comes around uh, the other thing that is, I think, so detailed that it probably matters more to the actors than the audience is that we know she and Gardner would have had Fanny late, you know, late by 1980s standards into her 30s. And now and now uh, um, Mags is in her 30s and is still not married and has still not had a grandchild. That's not brought up. But that we know just from the character descriptions that Fanny and Gardner had Mags late. And so this emphasis on, you know, your life needs to get started in some way, Mags, perhaps comes from maybe some world in which Fanny felt like maybe her life didn't get started as quickly as she would have liked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then then that that kind of leans into her her 
lack of fulfilled desire for connection from both of the people who are her family. Um, she's, she, she I mean, she, the first scene she's yelling from, from the other right. room, just trying to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. And, and it just can't be heard by Gardner. Gardner physically can't hear her. He cannot connect. Um, and, and so she continues this conversation all by herself. Um, Mags is not around. So she can't connect with her. She can't be uh, in in like just just a normal kind of family relationship with her. So that I think is the the core need that she's like trying to maneuver around for for these characters. I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that Fanny feels abandoned in her life, and it, I think that she's a wise enough. Uh, 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 she's cognitive enough that she understands that Gardner hasn't like abandoned her. That he's, but because of what is happening to him, he is not able to be there for her and with her like she wants. And Mags is making a deliberate choice not to be with them as Fanny would want, and that might cause some bitterness, some hardness, some that that we have to interpret as the audience as the story goes. Mm-hmm. There's there's kind of a heartbreaking description of a scene where she describes it. It flies past you. So much of this play flies past you. Um, it's a fast paced play of dialogue, but there's a, a short scene where Fanny just talks about how Gardner walked into someone else's house and called them by her name or like assumed assumed that he was home and that he was talking to to his right, family if, you know he's he's lost enough of himself that he doesn't even know or care much whether he's really home or not their their home means next to nothing to him is one of the first things we learn about where he is yeah it's a story told early in the play Pivoting slightly, because we only have a few minutes left, and I, I'd like to spend our last few minutes on this, if you agree, Jackson. Why painting? The play's called Painting Churches, and there's this central thing that happens throughout the play where Mags paints her parents. I mean, we've talked about why that happens on a character level as a way for Mags to redeem a little bit of what she's felt like her parents have not given her suitable uh, acumen as an artist, suitable love and, and justifying and, and uh, you know believing in her as an artist. So there's a character relationship there. But on an image theme level, if you're Tina Howe, why make this painting of the churches so prevalent in the show that it's the title, it's one of the central images throughout, it's what causes the final image of the play. I wonder if it's specifically around the theme of portrait um, and and what it means for the person whose portrait is being painted to see oneself that way. Um, and, 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 and not only to be seen to be, to, to be looking at yourself, but to be looking at yourself through the eyes of another and how you present to them. Um, the, the final scene of, of, uh, of Fanny interacting with the way she's painted is, is at first a whole lot of, uh, I'm not, or this is not, or why did you, um, but then it eventually warms up and she begins to see the things that Mags sees in her. And as she warms up to that theme, she becomes more open to it. And then that leaves room for Mags to see that she's open to her interpretation of their experience. And then, so in that, that, in that way, it's, it's something that can only be accomplished through portraiture, really. Um, that 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 visual nature of seeing what someone else sees you as through painting. I don't know if there's another way you could communicate that as clearly. So this is what Mag says about painting portraits. She says, the great thing about being a portrait painter, you see, is it's the other guy that's exposed. You're safely hidden behind the canvas and easel. 
And perhaps that's what Fanny and Mags realize about each other over the course of the play, is the ways in which they've safely hidden themselves behind different walls, really from each other. It's the that moment of vulnerability that happens at the climax of the play where Fanny finally opens and says, this is what has been happening, and this is why it's painful to hear you say these certain things. It, that seems like one of the moments where, one of the only moments where Fanny has really let her guard down, absent that final moment where she's dancing with Gardner. That also feels like a moment where her guard is down. And so representing guard being up, by, as you say, this image of portraiture where you are out of the picture, you're only examining someone else, viewing someone else through a specific lens, that becomes a really clear, physical, crystallized image of that theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it's interesting It's interesting to see it break down throughout the whole thing and, and to eventually allow someone else to... to, to allow uh, Fanny allows herself to be the vulnerable one eventually. Yeah, and of course the play's a comedy. Yeah, we always get to the end. Or <laughs> we like... always say that. It, and here's why: it's very hard to talk about plays that are funny and just tell you why they're funny. That's, That's true. That's not an interesting hour of conversation. No. Like, this joke was so good. <laughs> Let me tell you this joke. That doesn't really work. Right. This is a comedy through and through. It's silly. It's goofy, but it's got a deep well of heart and character. Um, I didn't say this at the beginning, so I'll say it now whenever I have occasion to tell people what are the shows I'd most like to direct, Painting Churches is in that group. Mm-hmm. And I've recently had occasion to do that a couple of times. And Painting Churches is one of the all-time plays I would love to direct. I just love this play. Yeah, it's a it's a lovely play. It is, it is funny, and it's funny in the kind of way that makes the like sharp drop-offs to poignancy and, and hard family moments that much more meaningful, and then you're back up to laughing right away. Um, if, if, there is thi- if there are things about this play that we have neglected to mention or uh, that you think we could take another crack at or if there are (laughs) there are certainly things that we missed in this play so please if you uh, have more to say about this play or would like to have someone to uh, talk to having read this play hit us up on Facebook Instagram or Twitter at noscriptpodcast or gmail noscriptpodcast at gmail.com we'd love to keep talking about this play and your experience of this play with you that's right and you can Help us out as we continue to talk about great scripts by telling other people about these conversations. If you know scripts, you like scripts, you probably know people that like scripts as well. So share the podcast with them. Tell them about it. Share a link with them. Show them. Listen to an episode with them. If you're trying to tell somebody where to find us, they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We also post a link to the new episode every Monday on Facebook. So until next week, when we're talking about the next great play that we're talking about, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.